Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you'll hear from the pioneers and innovators in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, regenerative, profitable and innovative. And we can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag, brought to you by Tamania Angus and Ace Radio, is your next big step in that direction. Welcome to this Raw Ag podcast. Today I've got Alan Parker. Um, Alan Parker, I don't really know how to introduce you, Alan. You've done so much. Started out as a professional <laughs> golfer. Um, you've uh, been an ultramarathon runner. But, yes. you know, in your more intellectual years, my God, your list of accomplishments is amazing, including, you know, working with Microsoft, AMP, the Macquarie Bank, um, New South Wales Bar and Deutsche Bank and Obmansman offices in New Zealand and Australia. Um, the list just goes on and on, Alan. Thank you, Tom. I'm, I've been fairly active, I think, in... <laughs> My constant pursuit of improvement, I think I would would say. Um, how I describe myself is usually that I'm an eccentric um, micro-behavioural scientist um, and I earn my living by managing very large, complex negotiations in the main. Well, Alan, it's sort of um, on the recent podcasts, um, the word negotiations come up a bit. Um, right. And um, I thought it might have been, I thought it was a good idea to get you on to uh, have a chat about negotiation and mm. what what it is, because um, particularly um, John McKillop last week was, um, right. you know, putting negotiation as one of the most important um, skills in his life. And and I think, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, negotiation, because I think people that don't really understand it well think it's a bit of a one-way street, you know, it's all about how to get things for yourself, but it's not really like that, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say not. Um, I definitely endorse John, John McKillop's comment, and I say it, it is important, Tom. The other angle that I look at it from is that we're never not negotiating that I've got this chatter that goes on inside my head, which is usually the the discussion around the last interaction I had or the next one I'm going to have or one that I've been working on for the last 10 years that I haven't resolved. And so in, it's the... Um, um, what's his name? Arnott. Charlie Arnott. Yeah. Charlie Arnott says that it's the paddock between our ears that we've got to get sorted out. And I think there's great wisdom in that. Everything I think inside of my head turns up in my nonverbal communication in some form or another. Um, and I consider, Tom, every interaction I have with another human being is either a negotiation or a scene setter for a negotiation or at least building the empathy and the relationship so that when we do have a need for a more serious negotiation, that we've actually got the relationship and the trust and the rapport in place to serve it well. So, you know, 
I come back to my first thing again, negotiation. You don't um, walk around thinking you're negotiating or in the presence of it. You, you're No. No, no. You're, and, and, and I think some of the things that we've talked about in the past is um, um, the process of it rather than the content of it. Yes. Yeah. I think negotiation, whether it's the informal chat on the phone or, or a chat in the hallway or it's something bigger or serious, um, we we are involved in negotiating the whole time. And it's a question of juggling three balls at first. Tom, I've got to juggle the content. I've got to know the stuff. But then it's how I manage the stuff, how I deliver it, um, how I set up a room even, how we... Um, set up the guidelines for a meeting or a negotiation. So it's very much the process. It even comes down to how do I use my sentences? How do I use my voice? How do I use my gestures? And then the third ball is the relationship. How aware and attentive am I of the other person? That's probably our biggest challenge in negotiating, Tom. And it is the juggling, the content, the process, and the relationship that is where the art form comes. So um, in the other art form, um, the relationship is, you know, respect, um, I yes. suppose. And um, yep. as, as a person, you know, building respect with someone else, you've also got to be completely responsible and and yes. I suppose loving in your approach to the way that that does. How, you know, I, I think we've spoken before about um, speaking your truth with love, and yes, and, and truth itself is sometimes really hard to define, isn't it, in a negotiation? It, it certainly is, Tom. Um, I love your words, relationship to respect, um, and and throwing in responsibility. What a good thing to do. Because the minute I throw in responsibility, as you're suggesting, I straight away reduce the likelihood of one or both of us being a victim. Yeah. And then and then you raise that wonderful word, that four-letter word that everybody avoids, Tom, that isn't avoidable, and you put the word love in. And then you follow it with truth. And I go, wow, you're, you're in the nitty-gritty. And that's why... I'm always fascinated, Tom, that people say that, you know, negotiation, human interaction, managing the people is the soft skills. And I often go, well, why is it so damn hard? Um, and I think it is those factors. How do I manage me in relation to you so that you feel respected? Yeah. Yep. How can, how can I be responsible to you, Tom, but not for you? How do we do those sorts of things? Because these, you know, I know that, um, you know, if you've got a difficult thing to talk to someone about, um, you know, it's often easier to avoid it, but you know the longer you avoid it, the more difficult it gets <laughs> and the more entrenched you become it um, yep. and the more the brow sweats when you think about it and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and yes. I Yes. And I'm sure that happens to you as well as it does to me sometimes. It does to all of us, I think. And it's the longer I protract the negotiation inside my head between my ears and and I rerun it over and over, I am in the process of avoiding it. 
And do you and create? And do you create that, some... that tension, Tom, does subtly build up. Yeah. And then I'm likely to. I could even be get irritable with somebody else who has nothing to do with it. And it's just the build of that tension. And if there's if there's three or four things that I would say are the biggest mistakes we make in negotiation. Um, it would definitely be back to your first point. We get obsessed with the content and we do the same old process over and over and over, which damages the relationship and makes that respect, that responsibility, that love, the finding of the truth harder to hear. But the dangerous thing of all, Tom, is the more often I do that avoidance, the more often I run the negative story, particularly in my head, the more likely I am to get stressed. And of course, the more likely I am to be stressed, the less likely I'm going to listen well enough to identify what the truth is. And I'm going to get so stuck in my rigid point of view that I hit a point where I don't actually hear what you're saying, Tom. That's, I think, my biggest mistake. That's our biggest mistake. As we get so caught in our own head, we don't hear either the words or the intention of the message from the other person. And often it's because I'm caught up in this internal chatter, which is often about blame and what's not right. And, um, and the thing can cycle down so quickly if I haven't taken care of those things you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Internal chat is often negative, isn't it? Whereas once it comes out, it becomes much more positive. Um, yeah. When you yeah. Ima I, imagination's creating a, uh, a a scenario, it's often it's a it's a sort of a defensive mechanism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We we have an innate need, Tom, to be acknowledged, recognised, appreciated, approved of. You know, at some level, we all have that, and. If I'm not getting the things that I feel I want to feel respected, then I'm likely to get into a negative cycle inside my head. And if it, if I, if it is a negative cycle I've got inside my head, I've got one or two things to do. I can either change what's going on inside my head, which is harder than, than it sounds, or... I can think about how do I proceed with this and not be in the avoidance process. But it doesn't mean I need to walk in and drop everything on the table at once. You know, the real success of a negotiation is get being smart enough to break the issue or the matter or the things we're discussing down into small enough bits that we can, and this is Alan Parker's favourite statement, so that we can find the agreement not get caught in the argument, debate or disagreement. So get closer to the core of what what um, those people what, what two people might agree upon and then work work back from that. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom, if I look at my career as a negotiator, um, as a sometimes facilitator, sometimes mediator, uh, at an inter in international meetings, it's called moderator. 
who actually convenes the meeting, um, I would I would think that people spend seventy five percent of all negotiation in the past on the problem mm-hmm. and what we disagree on. And people walk out of negotiations having never established what they do agree on. And often the thing we disagree on is just a small part of a much, much bigger thing. And I see that pattern over and over. Now, here's the other single behaviour, Tom, that would give us the chance of changing the dynamic in almost every negotiation. When I'm having that chat inside my head about what I'm going to do in the negotiation with you, if I were to make sure that in that conversation I never made a unilateral decision until I had had some discussion with the person about it. So if we discuss before we decide, we would have a completely different world. Because I think from my, this is my 40th year as a professional negotiator, that would be the biggest mistake I see across all negotiations across cultures, across industries, um, across nations that I've worked with and between. Um, People go in having made a decision about what they want without considering what's the chance of me getting agreement on the other side and putting forward propositions that have agreement available, I think is one of the most important pieces of the whole agreement process and the whole negotiation process. Because really what we're coming together to negotiate is to find some agreement that will work for all the parties. Because if I do work, you know, the classic hard-nosed win-win, I come out the loot winner, um, I've got to, in many cases, deal with that person again tomorrow. Mm, yep. and, if I, and if I'm the winner, if I'm playing the competitive win-lose game, the byproduct, Tom, of me winning is resentment tomorrow. And if I win win five or six times, I'll have revenge turn up eventually. And if I don't have revenge, I'll have white anting turn up. And those dynamics permeate all over the place in all sorts of businesses. yeah, it's um, well. You see that in politics, don't you? The pol- politician, oh, goodness. perhaps gets to the peak of the hierarchy of what she wanted to get or she wanted to get to. Yeah, um, yeah. And they leave a um, you know a trail of devastation behind them. Uh, yeah. It's very, very difficult for them to stay in their position yeah. because um, yeah. you know. Um, whereas if they've yeah. patted all the no, babies' heads and done everything on the way, it's sort of a bit easier. Yeah. I'll get, in, I'll get into big trouble here, but we have a political process, Tom, that has two parties. One's called the government and the other's called the opposition. Mm. And has anybody stopped to think about that? That means we're opponents. And we're not partners. And can we be partners in this process rather than opponents? Now, that leads me to say that there are really three types of negotiation going on. The first one is called divisional. That's when you and I are arguing over, is, are we going to do a transaction for $100,000 and, and you want fifty, and you and I argue and debate backward and forward. We both know I'm not going to get 100 and you know you're not going to get 50. 
But we, the best we can do with that type of negotiation is compromise. Now, the interesting thing, people think compromise means 75%, but it doesn't. Compromise usually ends up in the favour of the person with the greatest power. So if we're doing competition, we're encouraging power struggles. Now, the second choice is to do what's called integrative negotiation, which is really we're going to cooperate, work together to see what we can do to get the best for both of us. Now, that sounds simple, Tom, and you'd think everybody would go, yes, please, let me have some of that. And yet, in, business, in the business world, where I do my work and research, in the business world, we do the competitive negotiation process between point A and point B uh, almost 90% of the time. So we only do cooperation 10% of the time throughout a negotiation. Now, in the political process, it's 100%. Because it's a it's a competitive it's designed as a competitive process, and that's our greatest challenge. To go, can I not compete with you, but can I work with you together, so that we both do well out of the equation? Yeah, I suppose in the in the parliament, you know, that's the case. But probably behind the scenes in the corridor, the politicians actually probably aren't quite as competitive as they want us all to think they are. Uh, precisely, precisely, and yet we, the rank and file, don't quite understand that there is a whole gamesmanship that's going on in that process. And Tom, I put to you, it is sometimes. Some of the times it's not. There are some deals done in the background, but I would put it to you that they're still all power-based deals. I'll give you X if you give me Y. And it's still, I, I'd still call it, um, well, in the Harvard negotiation program, they refer to it as positional bargaining. And uh, the real skill is, can I come back to what you started with? Can I extend the, the content, which is the what, which is the outcome I'm after? Can I add to that better process that has us work together, has us design together, have us, has us decide together, has us do together. And that way, we can deliver your respect that you talked about. We can be responsible with and for to each other. We can, and I'm going to use your word, love, we can love how well we've done the process. And we can build enough trust enough rapport, a strength of partnership that allows truth to arrive. Where people feel, see, if we're doing the competitive game, safety and security isn't rewarded. But if we're doing the, comp if we're doing the cooperative approach, safety and security is something we both afford each other. Taking care of each other and our interest is the difference. Yeah, so how do and we, we, we get to that? If we want long-term sustainable relationships, business or personal, it is about how do we do this together better? 
not how do I get the best. Now, you were about to ask, how do we get that? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose, um, you know, some of those things, in a, particularly in a family relationship, are innate. They, you know, like safety and um, calm, yes. calm, even in the most difficult negotiation circumstances, those st- things are almost front of mind for yes. all parties because yes. of, of family connection. But how do we get yeah. there in a, in a business sense so that... Um, and both parties are actually um, almost, almost. I have been in negotiations, and particularly um, with a um, with a, a landlord years ago. Um, yes. And I found that we, when we were negotiating over things, that we we're almost negotiating on the other person's behalf. Yes. <laughs> so um, we were almost saying, "Hang on, you've forgotten this, and you've forgotten that," and and we yes. just we just so easily came to a consensus because yes. we both understood each other's requirements exactly. so well. Um, yes. and that's rare, yeah. though, isn't it? Um, it's 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 rarer than the opposite. And yet, Tom, if we were just to experiment with doing that just a little. Hey, hang on, Tom. You're disadvantaging yourself. Yeah. If you do that, may I suggest this? <laughs> if you saw that I was actually considering you, you know, it's that can I step into Tom's shoes? And oh, surely do this you'd be just Tom's a sucker to do that, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> Beg your pardon? You'd Sorry? be just a sucker. That's not how you negotiate, surely. Uh, well, you go well, hard and get what you want. There are. There are two games, and here's where your real <laughs> class of a negotiator comes in. Tom, we're either doing division or integration. Yep. So I'm your opponent or I'm your partner. Mm-hmm. And we've got to get clear which game we're playing. Because if, if you're the I'm, – I'm going to use some severe metaphor. If you're the shark, I'm going to treat you with the caution I'd treat a shark and the cunning that I'd treat a shark. And I've got to negotiate in a cunning way, which is go back 40 years, 45 years, and every book on negotiation was about how do I get the best out of these people? What can I do to take advantage of them? Um, yeah, business Fisher is war Uri, sort of stuff. Fisher, yeah. Fisher and Uri wrote the book Getting to Yes, which changed all that and said how about we look after the needs and interests of the other party and then let's look at the needs and the interest of everybody. So it's not just Alan and Tom having an argument and debate here. We've both got staff who work with us. We've both got family who interact with each other at times. And there are peripheral players here that if I'm doing competition with you, I've set up competition with the whole network of people we're interacting with. If I look at you and go, yes, he's a shark, I've got to play that game. And over time, I might be able to shift you. But I can't go in and be super nice and I'll, you know, take care of everything for Tom because you'll just do me over. And that's the art. Now, here's where it gets difficult. My ego will kick in and my neurosis will kick in and I'll start not trusting you. Because I have a history of that game. So it takes a while to shift somebody out of that to a more cooperative approach. But there are a lot of people, Tom, out there hanging out to do cooperation. 
that we often right, yeah. miss. Yeah, of course. We often right. we we just miss them, and they're they're we're waiting, going. I'd love to work together with you. So the other thing, and sometimes, that, yeah, sometimes on, it's ahead. just sometimes it's just a question of hey, um, we got caught up in a little bit of noise and nonsense here. Can we just stick that on hold and start again? Yeah. So there's there's a thing that breaks down trust. Um, yeah. You're you're talking to you know people negotiating and they're coming from two different methods. So one of yep. Um, yep. cooperation and and relationship building and perhaps a yep. shark. The yep. and the other thing that um, I think unrails people is different people's different versions of the truth. Yes. And, and absolutely. And so in a dis- in a negotiation when. Um, people's perception of and and the truth becoming such a difficult thing to define in in, sure this, mo- in this modern age. It just seems to be uh, the postmodernist truth is the way you, the tr- truth is the way you perceive it to be. Um, scenario is just going crazy at the moment. But you know, when two people have different versions of the truth, how do, how do you where what negotiation process do you go yeah, into then? Lovely, Tom. Can I just quickly let you you listeners here, our listeners here know <clears throat> that part of my strange background is I'm a forensic linguist. Um, so I've probably got a better chance of finding out if somebody's telling the truth than the average punter. Um, but in direct answer to your question, how do we find out about the truth? But there's, sort of, there's, there's two sorts of, there's someone there's, that's lying, being dishonest, and there's yes. also someone who's got a different interpretation. So there's two different interpretations yes, of the exactly. same, the same issue. Exactly. And I'm not sure, Tom, we can ever be certain of which is which. So what we, my recommendation, is if I'm hearing Tom, and it either doesn't make sense to me, or it's opposed to what I'm thinking, or it's a completely different point of view, or I think you're lying. Either one of those, I'm going to do a very simple three-step skill process to clarify what you're saying and to get you to rethink it. And whatever you say, I'm simply going to acknowledge what you said. So, Tom, you're saying that we can't do that because of the budget being too short. Now, that could be just your standard line. And I go, so, Tom... Yeah, things are short. Um, what would we need to do to get you what you need within your budget? Now, the minute I ask you that question, you've got to stop and think. Now, no matter what you say, I'm going to acknowledge it back. And then I'm going to go, Tom, how might we manage that? How might we do that? Now, you'll notice it's how might we. So I've gone from an inquiry question to a speculative question. How might we? Now, when I put might in, it takes the pressure off you. When I put we in, it makes it us collectively. So if I can do acknowledge a what question, what what would you prefer to see happen? And how might we do that? If you do that, I'm going to get a different set of words out of your mouth to work with. And I don't even have to question whether it's true or false. 
because I've taken the conversation to a future-oriented place, a present-oriented and a future-oriented place, where we're actually, because of the questions, moving into option generating. And that's a completely different part of the brain that's working. Because the truth usually deals with the past. The tr uh, Tom, if I go, this is what it is, it's because I've fixed an opinion in the past. Yep. Now, I may not have updated. Things may have changed. Just this morning, a simple, tiny example, just this morning, I had a client who's in a quite distressing situation. And early this morning, I sent her a text message that said, here are the three gaps I've got today. Here are the two I've got tomorrow. Here's the gap I've got on Thursday. Let me know which you prefer. And we'll hold all of them in my diary until I hear back. So I sent that to her, and then I immediately sent it to Jen, my EA, who put it into my diary. And by the time, within 60 seconds, it was in my diary. And then the woman came back to me two minutes later. Now, in that two minutes, I'd sent Jen a message saying, I'm now full, no more, no, no nothing else can be put into today, please. And within two minutes, and I've gone this emphatic, shut things down. And within two minutes, she's come back and said she can't do any of the time. So I've got three spots available. So the world changes quickly. Mm. We, we, in this change, rapid changing world, Tom, the most dangerous thing we can do is go, this is how it is. Because it never is. Things are going to change. People change their mind. People forget stuff. Um, the, the, the ability to be adaptive and observant and observant now on what's going on in front of my eyes and in my ears, not what's going on in my head about what happened an hour ago or two hours ago, but can I keep updating and be in the present? And can I in the present explore what the options and possibilities are rather than the restrictions and the obstacles. Such an important difference. So the process um, versus content, sort of you've often mm -hmm. talked about process, and I think you gave mm -hmm. us a little example of process in acknowledgement and yeah. confirm before. Um, yeah. Yes. And so, you know, in... It, if we sort of dovetail truth back into it, um, yes. a, a dishonest or a sorry, dishonest. Um, uh, yeah, you can uh, use that word. I'm I can use that, that word, but I'd rather say yeah. um, an emotional re reaction. Oh, now you're on. Now you're on track. A re <laughs> a re God, you're a hell. Now you're on you're, track. You're quite good at this. <laughs> you make me feel so good about my, what I'm saying. So <laughs> you <are>. struggling <laughs> you, through it. You, I am. Did, but, you, did you write the script? This is a good script. Oh, yeah. No, it's been thought about for weeks. No, no, it hasn't. Um, <laughs> so the truth, yeah, I've, lost my, I've lost my focus now. But the no, I can help you with the it. The <laughs> you brought up the emotions. Emotions, yeah. Well, that's yeah. what you're doing to me. See, um, yeah. the truth um, is often um, epistemic or, um, ep um, yeah. or it's, it's, um, it, it's emotional. So we're... we're how do we, how do you deal with that in a negotiation where someone's actually 
um, their meaning is right and and well, but it's, yes. it's but it, it's not it's not quite um, being pragmatic because of um, emotional situations yep. that are going on as well. Yep. How do you yep. do that in a negotiation? Because honestly, I think that happens. It's, and it's oh, probably Tom, you're, you're you're in the bullseye. You're in the bullseye. <laughs> where where does where do things go wrong? Things go wrong because the human organism has a dense set of neurons called emotions. And um, and when now when you're you and I are interacting and we're having a negotiation, and you talk, I've got to really make sure that I listen for what you're saying and manage my own body so that I stay calm and composed and I breathe. Because if I'm calm and composed and breathe, I've got the best chance of telling the truth. The moment I get emotional, Tom, Mm -hmm. I either generalise, distort, meaning I understate it or exaggerate it, or in this day and age would become fashionable at dramatising and catastrophising, or I omit and leave stuff out. Now, the moment I generalise and, and distort, overstate it, exaggerate it, I straight away leave stuff out. And because I've left something out, that we're talking only perception, not facts. And when we're listening, we've got to listen for the facts, the feelings, and the perceptions. Because when you say something, like you mentioned emotions, I said, yes, Tom, now you're in the bullseye. That's what it is. Um, the fact that humans are emotional and it impacts their negotiations and their relationships and their interactions, um, that's a pretty clear fact that nearly everyone's going to agree with. So you gave me the the clear piece of fact that almost everybody would agree to. And then I go, those feelings could be fearful. Those feelings could be anxiety. Those feelings could be excitement. See, all I've got to do is get excited about something and I'll overstate it and exaggerate it. And once I overstate and exaggerate it, which is a craft in politics and a craft in selling, I'm actually leaving the arena called facts. Now, if I, no matter what's going on, if I acknowledge what you say, ask you an inquiry question with a what, and ask you an expanding question with a how, I'm not only going to get the facts from the past into the present, the how question stimulates the action thinking part of my brain And that then gets me into thinking about options and alternatives. And we can leave the lie or the dishonesty or the exaggeration or the distortion behind and move into the present and explore options and possibilities. Um, The human organism is an emotive organism. And the better we are at not controlling emotions but choosing them, um, the more successfully we'll negotiate. The, the greatest skill in negotiation, I think, is composure. And can I not react to anything 
but just observe it and go, isn't that interesting, fascinating? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Isn't and we've all we've all seen people that do that well, haven't we? That and uh, oh. and you know and and they sort of uh, portray almost a feeling of you know where you stand with them. Um, yes, you know because yes. yeah, I know, I agree with that's uh, that's true. So, um, Alan, you know, you you talk about um, emotion and how it causes people to perhaps generalise, um, slightly exaggerate or whatever. What, yeah. ha- what happens, and I'm sure you've got experience with this, when you walk into a large um, auditorium full of people that have come together <laughs> to negotiate something and they have slightly different truths and different emotions that attach to it, and yes. and they've all come from chambers of mirrors themselves and they have their own yes. ideologies. I mean, yes. as a as a mediator in a room like that, where do you go? Oh, Tom, this now brings in the my probably strongest message is you don't walk into the room until you've done a lot of preparation. Right. Yeah. Um, can I? Would I be? I I met. You know, my expertise is managing very large groups. Um, in fact, I have many to do a global world leaders meeting with 1,200 people in the room. Um, and the how do I walk in that room with composure is I talk to as many people as I can before. I read as much as I can before so that I talk to people so that I've built connection and rapport with them so that that there is that sense of safety and security and yeah i think it's safety and security um and i've endeavored to talk to enough people from a really neutral perspective not having an opinion about anybody being right or wrong but just everybody wanting to be heard and negotiating is largely about can I participate in this event without getting caught up in everybody else's point of view or emotional state? And can I bring a really positive state to the room so that if everybody is at war with each other, they can look to me to be the person that's not at war with them? And can I give, can I make sure that it's not just the loud, dominant, strong player who's dominating the room? That can I run a process that gives everybody a chance to be heard and understood? And because I do that in very large negotiations, the rooms, I don't get a lot of times where it's very hostile, but it's not saying I don't. But I never, ever meet hostility with hostility, ever. I just, the more hostile somebody is, the more I focus on being calm and available to chat. And it's that ability, because people are attracted to calm and stability. Um, 
And I, I truly think, Tom, 90% of people turn up in a negotiation hoping that they'll just get a voice and be heard and understood. And that's uh, the central focus. Whether I'm facilitating a meeting or I'm a party to the negotiation, um, I always want to be the the place of safety, if you like. Um, and it doesn't mean I can't, you know, I, I can stand head to head and be the head button sort of approach if necessary. But I, I won't ever let my emotion or my ego decide that I'm going to do that. It's always got to be my rational composure that would allow me to take it. And if I'm, if I'm doing a hard-nosed approach, it's, you can damn bet it's a performance. It's not an emotional driven by Alan. Yeah. So but it's a bit, it's a, a bit, once you bring a group together, groups are, there's small groups, medium groups and large, and they behave differently. If you've got less than eight people, they'll behave like individuals. If you've got 10 to 25, they'll subgroup. And if you've got over 25, they'll behave like a herd. And it's why I like to work with big groups. They're much, if you know how to manage big groups, they're easier to manage. Because they don't create alliances as much, or no, they don't. Yeah, they don't create. Particularly when you bring them into a room, um, their alliances won't be as strong if you manage the process well. So, in those situations, how do you keep yourself um, from being uh, sort of finding the truth and becoming sort of prejudiced to the outcome? Oh. <laughs> that's a, that's a question to you. Of, now you're going to see how esoteric and and, um, and eccentric <laughs> I am. Well, I um, would I'd find that tricky. I'm a, I'm a forensic linguist, Tom. Yeah, I actually think that we all think there is truth and fact, but there's only my perceptual version of the truth and fact. So I consider everybody's perspective valid. I don't assess it as honest yeah. or dishonest. Yeah, okay. I just go, it's it's what that person truly believes at this point in time is true. But there is a and, problem with that, though. If, um, oh, there is if, a if, if people, with it. If, if people's perception of the truth, if one person's yeah. perception of the truth starts... Yes. Um, th st spreading through everyone else's and one person's yes. perception of the truth becomes everyone else's, Yes, then yep. the truth then starts getting quite warped. I don't, I don't want to be provocative and I want to keep it close to where our, our listeners can relate to. Yeah, fair enough. But, but we saw that with Donald Trump. There yeah, well, are 75, 75 million people supported his behaviour, which is... In many instances, extraordinary. Um, yeah, remarkable. Now, they, they may the, not have supported the, that the, side the of his behaviour. Well, did they support that side of his behaviour, or did they just support the fact? I mean, look, um, well, they—he was—I don't know what they supported. No, I neither don't do I. Quite, <laughs> I don't spend time in it, but because it—it—it it, it strikes me, it's very much divisional negotiation. And I'm an advocate for cooperative negotiation. Yeah. We, we, we can do better together, Tom, than we can individually. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's just no, you know, 
one plus one equals five if you get good at it. Yep. Uh, not just three. Throw, um, throw all the ideas we, in the ring and then pick through them until you yeah, know, the, all all the, the group has found yeah. the best way pathway through. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now the downfall of my comment about you know everybody's point of view is valid. Um, twofold is one it's valid, and I as a negotiator are skilled at getting them to question their point of view, but I do it through inquiry, not through advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just ask enough questions for them to rethink what they're thinking about and get them to come up with a new approach. That's really the, you know, I, I earn a substantial income from acknowledging what people say, asking what and how questions. And then when, when their brain's starting to show signs and their behaviour's starting to show signs of lightning and moving, I then go, what might we, what could we, what, what would possibly work here? And we do speculative inquiry, it's called. And that speculative inquiry wakes up a new part of the brain that hasn't been involved while I'm focusing on the negative in the past. Alan, you didn't mention why then, you know, why question. No, I don't. Tell <laughs> well, us tell us about that. You're, you're good, aren't you? <laughs> I love your listening. Um, yeah, Tom, as you know, I've done a lot of fairly large amount of international work and worked in, I've lost track, but I think I've worked in something like 75 countries around the world. And I've, I've had 192, I've had people from 192 countries in one room. Um, so I've, I've got some, um, some cross-cultural experience Australians do something very unique with the word why. And I'll demonstrate it to you first. So, Tom, why did you do that? Well, now, you'll get that that's not a genuine question. Yeah. That's, a, that's got a tone of voice in it that's accusational. Yeah, so I was starting to feel yeah? judged. I was starting to feel and like I was judged. Australians that. use why as an interrogative, interrogatory question not an inquiry question. Now, I haven't found another country in the world that does it, but we do. Well, well, why would you do that? And now that's not, that's not. No. That's, that's saying you're an idiot. <laughs> why would you do that? Um, we have a way. Go to your room. <laughs> what we ask why in a way that's blaming or accusational and flicks everybody back to the past. So when I want to inquire about why, which is an important question, and why is what's the purpose of this? Why are we doing what we're doing? I always put it in a what. So, Tom, what, what was you thinking about that? Or, Tom, what do you think the origin of that was? Or what do you think the purpose of that was? And I put it in a what question because Australians are much more receptive to what than their how, because most of their hows, they have to be defensive. Yeah, so I, I eliminated why out of my vocab when I'm in Australia. When I'm out of Australia, I use it. Okay. 
Yeah. Now, um, we're getting towards the end. I just wonder, I've got one. Yeah. Um, we've got a little um, in the studio here, a question for you about imposter syndrome that's been coming up a little bit as well. <laughs> Tell us about imposter syndrome because oh, it happened last week and, you know, um, we spend most of our life wondering how we're going to get there and then wonder how we got there when we do. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> can you tell us a bit about what your thoughts oh, are? Can or? I can I give a personal example? Yeah, um, uh, Tom, I as you're ninety percent sure you're aware. I had an eye condition that meant I didn't read until I was thirty three zero. Um, so I've spent I spent after from thirty onwards I spent the rest of my life catching up, um, and because I couldn't read. I, I became a very good listener. I developed very good memory because I had to pay a lot of attention to get information. And I became a copious note-taker. Um, and so I managed to do reasonably well with that, what most people call handicap. I never, ever considered it and still don't consider it a handicap. It was a, it was a dynamic that was me. Um and then I met Dr. Dennison in, in, at San Diego University and my life turned around. Um, and now, you know, I'm a ferocious reader. But I was a good writer, Tom. And it meant I got invited, I don't know, I couldn't have been more than about 33 or 34. And I got invited to write courses on the dispute resolution program at the University of Western Sydney. And and I'd done some international negotiations with the European Union, the United Nations and the OECD, for which the university awarded me an honorary professorship. Now, here I am at 35. I can read at the average literacy rate, but I've just been made a professor. Now, I spent the next 25 years, Tom, trying to work really hard to cover up my humiliation about being this, <laughs> having this label called a professor. I felt totally fraudulent. And I spent 25 years studying and researching, and, and I wrote, I've written 23 subjects at master's level across multiple universities in degree in dispute and negotiation. And I was just about out of my imposter syndrome. And then three years ago, I received an order of Australia. And I'm still deeply in my imposter syndrome. And um, I just think... So tell us the psychology just, of it, what's going on in your head when you become... Oh, I, it just simply means I don't feel averted. I don't feel adequate. It's... It's an award or a recognition beyond what my image of myself is. Mm. And so, and the thing I'm grateful for for my imposter syndrome, it's been a high motivator for me to learn and study in areas I would never have learned and study if I hadn't had that inadequacy. Well, yeah. th thanks, for Alan. Look, uh, before, before we finish, we need to do the three M's. Is there anything oh, else years. anything else that we've missed that you've you know, some pearl of wisdom I don't <laughs> that, oh. that you'd like to tell the Rorag public? But Oh let me just quickly summarize. Discuss before we decide. 
listen to the facts, the feelings and the perceptions, recognise everybody's point of view is valid, but neither accurate or inaccurate. Um, manage the negative chatter inside your head and ask more questions and statements, I think is my, my summary of what's critical. So, uh, so what mistakes have you made, Alan, in your life? Oh, gosh. Tom, I make them every, every 10 minutes. If you, if you watch what I've been doing, is every now and again you ask me something, I start on something, I get partway through it and I go, oh, that's only part of what he's asking. Let me, no, I've missed a bit. Let me stop and pause and rethink that. And it's why I pause so often so long. I recognise how often I'm off track. And I'm, I'm, I don't have a description of mistakes beyond that because I've got so much refining to do in the moment. Well, perhaps it's better recognising it than not recognising it all, and that's why we all think you are on track. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I constantly pause and check and take a breath. Yeah, very because good. Because if, if I get into autopilot, anything can come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, if I don't pause often enough, I'm tripping up all the time. So what, what masterpieces are you particularly proud of in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, how honest do you want me to be? Um, my greatest achievement in my life was I had an alcoholic, violent father, and he and I had exquisitely beautiful conversations before he died. And I pointed out to him that my success was because of him, not in spite of him, and that I had learned my composure and my consideration skills by living through the experience that we'd had together, and I was grateful for it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. and he and I, he passed with him and me. Really, the last three months of his life, we were deeply, closely connected for our first time. So there's a message yeah. in that, you know, for everyone really, isn't it, that even negative moments in your life are opportunities to learn? Oh, gosh, he, he taught me how to be a skillful, non-reactive negotiator. Mm. Yeah, I, I owe the biggest debt of my skill to him. Yeah. And mentors. What mentors? Oh, gosh. Oh, now you, you, you brought a ball of emotion to me. Um, I have to say, uh, Queen Elizabeth II was, has been one of my role models all of my life. Here, here. I have just, yeah. talk, I just, I want to be that impeccably considerate just for five minutes before I go. Um, I've been blessed. Dr. Stephanie Burns took me from reading 150 words a minute to 2,500 words a minute with 90% comprehension in three days. Um, she's a genius. I just look up to her with admiration and um, both John and Michael Grinder, two of the world's leading experts in linguistics and nonverbal communication, both brothers. Um, yeah, they'd be, they're very high on my, my list. Um, John Medina, the neuroscientist, and you, you're aware of my, my, my interest in neuroscience, Medina, I've read his book over 20 times. Um, 
Great. Well, Alan, thank you very much for coming on the RORAG podcast. It's been a great privilege to be able to have you on our podcast and to talk to you. Um, you're, a, you're, a, you're a fantastic Australian. Well, thank you, sir. That's very kind. I'm just deeply appreciative and honoured that you would invite me to be part of it, and it's been a, a complete joy and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, and, Alan. Thank you, Tom. Take care. The RORAG podcast is a collaboration between Tamani Rangus and the Ace Radio Network. If you're enjoying the RORAG podcast, make sure you leave a review or rate us on your favourite podcast app.